Well, everybody, good to see you. If you're watching online, friends of Sydney, thanks for joining us. And uh, everybody in the room, thanks for not going to the Garth Brooks concert on Saturday night. I really <laughs> appreciate that. I was afraid it might be a little lonely here tonight, um, but you're here. That's good. That's good. Hey, uh, speaking of seniors, you know, we did that little video of seniors. I, I just got a call about 30 minutes before service started from my oldest son who just graduated from high school. And um, he went up to work on the Scott Ranch up in the prior. <laughs> this is his first week. I bet he's ridden a horse like twice in his life. He's like, Dad, I spent six days on a horse. We branded 700 cows. Dad, I saw 12 rattlesnakes. It was great. He's loving every minute. I had to get up at 4 a.m. every morning, which is very uncharacteristic for that boy. And he's loving it. He is in Montana. So we are actually wrapping up this series we call it the original, going back to 33 A.D. when the church all began. And uh, we, we've talked about oh, a few things. You know, one would be this whole idea of, of the early church considered themselves disciples of Jesus rather than just this title Christian and how that really makes a difference and how I approach my spiritual life. And we talked a lot about love. That Jesus says uh, the, the thing that would distinguish his followers would be the way they love one another. And I want to I end this series on that subject. In fact, we're going to visit Matthew chapter 22 here in just a moment where Jesus makes a statement that is, um, I, I think it's easy to talk about, but incredibly challenging to actually put into action. Jesus is going to say something that distills down so many of the different emphasis within the Bible, so many of the different teachings to just two statements about what it's really like to be someone who follows God. So if, um, if you've been following him for some time, I think this will resonate with you because this text, no matter how many times I've read it, I still find it incredibly challenging. Intellectually, I comprehend it. But putting it to practice, being a practitioner of this, is incredibly difficult. Uh, if maybe you're, you're not sure what you believe, you're unresolved spiritually, I hope this would give you a clear idea of what Jesus was really all about. I think uh, when he makes a statement, he's going to boil a lot of things down that may have been quite confusing to you. And you'll think, oh, I get it. And now I've got to decide whether or not I want to. I want to adopt that way of living. So let's read together from Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we'll start at verse 34. And this is Jesus talking with a group of very, very religious people. So Jesus has just been talking. There's two religious groups that are kind of in power. And they're vying for power. And they don't always get along. One's the, the Pharisees and the other is the Sadducees. And they both have influence. They're both considered teachers of the Torah, the Old Testament in particular. And they don't always get along. And so Jesus just said something that uh, kind of made the Sadducees kind of back up a little bit. Both parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are, are the people who have the hardest time with Jesus. Because the way he talks about God, God the way he deals with humans, especially humans who are broken, they're terribly uncomfortable with it. And so they're, they're often trying to trip him up. They're trying to um, do something that would put him in a bad light. Okay, so they want to discourage people from following Jesus. So Jesus has just spoken to the Sadducees. And hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, 
the Pharisees got together. So you can imagine this. They're in a huddle. And they're like, now it's our turn. We've got to do something. This guy's got way too much influence. People are listening to him. He's gaining in popularity. They probably feel really threatened. They feel threatened because they've led in terms of religious culture. One of them, an expert in the law. So that would be the first five books of the Old Testament is what Hebrew people refer to as the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he's an expert in this. Literally, his, his levels of education and memorization would have been beyond anything that we can even comprehend right now. To be considered an expert in the law, he would have had those first five books of the Bible memorized. They were within him. He could quote them. They were at the tip of his tongue. He did everything he could to live by those laws. Tested him with this question. So here's the test. Teacher, using the word rabbi, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this was something that was debated constantly. And there were different leading rabbis who said, well, this is the most important, that is the most important. And Jesus is actually going to side with a rabbi who had lived about 30 years before him where he identifies something from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. Jesus is going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. This is known as the Shema, Shema in Hebrew. It's the word Shema means listen. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, Shema Israel Elohim Adonai, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it was something that was repeated at least twice a day by every good Jewish person. This was at the core of what they believed. It's about love for God. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, and remember, the Pharisee didn't ask for a second. But Jesus is going to say, not only do you need to know that's the greatest, but there's another one that's very important. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 18. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law... All the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's just talk about that last phrase. What is Jesus saying when he says they all hang on these commandments? There were over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. All the books written before the arrival of Jesus. And Jesus says something extraordinary. He's saying these, these commandments are the pivot point for understanding everything else in the Bible. Now, the, the, the original word literally means like it's the pivot point or it's the hanging point. And so just imagine that Jesus is saying this. Everything that you've known, you're students of the scripture, you've studied it backwards and forwards. All 600 of those commandments, some of them have to do with your relationship with God. Some of them have to do with your relationship with other people. But they all find their root. They all hang on. They all have to be attached to these two commandments. So, I mean, even in your mind, can you imagine 600 plus commandments? And Jesus says, all of them hang off of these first two. Without these two, it's, it's a myriad of options and you wouldn't know where to begin. He says, loving God with the whole of your being. 
Everything else that you read in the law and the prophets hangs upon that. You can't even understand it or comprehend it without this idea that we're to love God with all of our being. And loving people, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Now, Jesus is going to say this often. This was a fairly fresh perspective. Jesus wasn't the first rabbi to say loving God is at the core. It was very clear. But Jesus is going to say, and here's the second, which is very important, is loving people as yourself. And so imagine you could even take the Ten Commandments, four of which have to do our relationship with God. He says they all hang on this idea. It's not just the command, but they're all things that allow us to love God. That's their purpose. You could take the Six Commandments, which have to do with human-to-human relationship. He says they hang. Where they find their root or their home is on this idea that they allow us to love other people well. I mean, I don't know if there's a more clear way for Jesus to say, if you could hone in on two thoughts for your life. Because faith sometimes becomes a bit confusing, doesn't it? Anybody ever felt that? I don't know what to do. There's so many things I think I'm supposed to do. Have I been adequate in this area? Or have I been adequate in that area? Or am I doing enough? Jesus says, if we could distill it down to these two commandments, everything hangs from them. Without them, there's no, 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 no purchase for these two commandments. Now, here's the challenge. Religious people, okay, and I, I'm including myself in this. I'm, I think if you're in this room, you could probably include yourself in this. Religious people are inclined to look at the command and forget the commander. Okay, we become infatuated with the do's and the don'ts. What am I supposed to do? So that's exactly what's happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's why they argue over things constantly because they're obsessed with the 600 plus commands. And then very intelligent rabbis have written further commands. And so they've got this myriad of commands and they get obsessed with the commands and they forget about the one who gave the commands, the commander. And one of the things that Jesus seems to be doing is he takes religious people and he says, I understand you're wondering how to live your life, but could you focus on being one who loves God with the entirety of your being? Because if I can do that, everything else hangs from there. Could I be a human being who focuses on loving the people around me in a selfless manner? Because if I can, my ethical decisions, all of those decisions, what do I do in this situation? How do I treat this person? This person has been harsh to me. What do I do from here? Instead of being obsessed with the commands, Jesus says, look to the one who gave the commands. You know, when I was, um, I, first, I first became a pastor when I was like 23 years old. And I had no idea what to do. We were in Eugene, Oregon, and we had a college church. We bought a sorority. We had 60 students that lived with us. We lived in a little, it was like a 480 square foot mother-in-law apartment where the house mom for the sorority would live. The sorority, when we bought it, was, was three shades of pink. 
I spent months of my life covering pink so that I could get 30 guys to move in. And we had church every Friday night and Bible studies throughout the week. And I just felt like I don't know what to do. I'd look at this book and I'd say, where do I start? What do these people need to know? I'm a year older than most of them, right? It, it, what do I do? And it, I worked through this text and it, 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 was, it was just monumental in my life. We made a banner. This is before we had computers that could print cool things. So we hand-painted a banner that we hung above the room that we met in. We could fit about 400 students in this room. And it just said, love God with everything you've got. Love people with everything he gives you. And every day when I walk home and I think, what am I doing? I'm so, I'm not prepared for this. I don't know what to say. I look up and I remember. If there's just one thing that we could figure out how to do as a community. If we could figure out how to love God with everything we have. And then love people with everything he gives us we'd be in the ballpark. And so it's been a mantra for me. It's so important. But like I said earlier, it's more difficult to put into practice than one might think. Because I'll always become distracted by different things. So what is Jesus getting at this? It's just one of those things where you realize how brilliant Jesus is. Uh, in the 2,000 years since Jesus walked this planet, We've done all types of research and in terms of uh, psychology, mental sciences. Uh, listen to this statement. This, this is what Jesus was getting at. There are two categories of people who have impacted us the most. I, I know there's a lot of different backgrounds. There's all kinds of ages in the room. But I really believe this. There's two categories of people who have impacted all of us the most. This is, this is how we see what Jesus was actually saying is a reality in our life. The first is the people who have hurt you. The people who have hurt you. Now, some of us, we don't know that we were hurt by someone, but the way you're acting in life, there's a hurt back there that you need to address. The people who have hurt you. And the second is the people who have loved you. That's impacted you powerfully. Some people in this room have an extraordinarily healthy self-esteem. You're well-adjusted. You might even be easy to be married to. And here's why. It's because you were loved well. You were loved well. And when you're loved well, you end up in a fairly healthy place in life. But if there was a lack of love in your life or there was trauma, abuse, neglect, whatever it might have been, that hurt within you has shaped you, informed you, and impacted you. And some of us were four, five, six decades into this life and we're still trying to work through things that were damaging deep within us. See, Jesus knows if we could figure out how to love God and love people, do you, do you know how much healthier this world would be? Now, here's a peculiar thing about that. Some of the people who have hurt us the most actually were very familiar with this book. And they never missed a weekend at church. They were very religious. And yet, because they lacked the capacity to love, they were missing the second of the commandments. It's left a negative impression in our lives. So, so it's, it, it's very possible, and I bet if we shared stories 
you'd say, you know what, there is this person in my life and you'd think they had it together because they were so arduous, so disciplined in their spiritual life. But something they said, the way they treated me, the, the harshness, whatever it was, caused a deep hurt in my life. The people who made the biggest impact on our lives are the people who have loved us well and people who have hurt us. Jesus understands that, that that's what changes people's lives. Here's the fascinating thing. Now, I, I think this applies to the Pharisees, but it applies to so many other people. The way that you have been treated and how you respond to that treatment has more to do with who you are than what you believe. I wish I could say that what I believed religiously, uh, ideologically, philosophically was what truly shaped me. Well, have you noticed you can learn a lot. You can have a great deal of information. But still, because Jesus knew this idea of being loved and of loving well and of being focused upon God, that's what truly shapes me. That's what changes me. It's not more information. And so Jesus is having this disagreement with these Pharisees who are obsessed with more knowledge, more understanding, memorizing more, being better in terms of their religion. And Jesus is desperately asking them to reconsider what truly changes the world. Love for God and love for people. So, everything's hanging on these two ideas. So number three, I think we see this lived out in Jesus' life in two ways. Next two points are going to... You're going to show us that. Number three, there are two ways that we can interact with our world. And we'll see this between how Jesus treated people and then how the religious establishment treated people. Words you've probably heard before. But when it comes to Jesus, he, he would say this. I love everyone. I love the people I meet. I, I, I love the broken people. I love the people that maybe the religious elite considered disqualified or unfavorable or beyond love or they hadn't straightened out enough. So Jesus had this message where he said, first, I believe that there's room in God's family for everyone to belong, to belong, that there's room to be loved. And then secondly, once people were, think of the, think of the thief on the cross, okay? Jesus is being executed. There's two, two criminals on either side. They've done something that deserves capital punishment. One is mocking Jesus with the crowd. The other just, this is all he says. He says, hey, leave Jesus alone. We, we deserve this. He didn't. And what does Jesus say to him? Surely today I'll see you in paradise. What? Jesus has room in his life and his heart at that moment. I think I might say, hey, wait a minute. This guy's been a lifetime criminal and all he has to say is leave Jesus alone. He hasn't done anything wrong. I need to see some life change out of that guy. Like you're going to give him paradise right now? Because he's still a criminal. He's still being executed. This is, this is just how Jesus operated. So you belong. You are loved. You believe. You begin to realize the truth. And then you become. It's this behavioral change. Somehow, somehow, Jesus lived this out and people's lives were actually changed. If, if what you're looking for is a changed life, it seems to happen through this. We, we could go through story after story after story 
of Jesus, meaning Matthew, one of the most despised people that could have been uh, even existing at the time when Jesus walked the earth. He's, he's a tax collector. He's a sellout. He works for the Roman government. And Jesus says, hey, you follow me. And everybody's like, what? That's the worst of the worst. Jesus says, I've got room. You can be my disciple. He begins to believe. He hears the message. He becomes. He becomes a different person. Now, when we get the order reversed, when we don't understand that it's loving God and loving people, here's what we do. We just move the words around a little bit, and this is what we say. We put the emphasis first and foremost on believe. You must believe these certain things. And without believing these certain things, there's no room for you to belong or to become. Now, when it gets really religious, this is what we do. Believe these things. You must adhere to these things. Then your life has to change. We need to see change. We need to see all those habits go away. And then eventually you belong. I think this is in part why there are many churches that are struggling today. Because we have the order of the Pharisees. You have to believe the right things. You have to do the right things. And then we say, now God can love you. And it's not until these two things are done before God can love you. And what drove the Pharisees crazy is that Jesus said, my forgiveness is big enough for whatever you've been through, whatever you've done. And people would receive his love and they would repent. At its best, repentance, meaning turning away, is a response to love. We sometimes even get that confused. First repent, and then, you, then, then God will love you. He loves. When I realize I'm loved, I repent. I begin to believe. I don't have to know everything. This was the Pharisees' big one. It's about knowledge and facts. And then eventually I'll become. It, this changes. But religion says you have to change before God can love you. And Jesus takes these two phrases out of Deuteronomy, out of Leviticus. And he says, everything hangs on these. Let's start with the heart. Let's start with how do we love God first and foremost? And then how do we love the people around us? Fourthly, I just want to present a question. And it, it's probably terribly simple. But I'll tell you what. I, I think if we could figure out how to ask this question on a regular basis, the world would be a different place. So here's the question. If, if loving God and loving people, if Jesus put these two things, these places of prominence, and says everything else hangs on them, here's the question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? Let's talk first of all with God. What does love require of me in order that I would love God with the entirety of my being? Just think for a moment about some of the things that you're going to do this week. There are a lot of things that are unpredictable, but you know some of the things that are going to happen this week. Pause for a moment. Think about it. I'm thinking of certain meetings, standing meetings I have. I'm thinking of interactions. I'm thinking about things at home. I'm going to have interactions with my wife, my kids. I'm going to have interactions with my neighbors. I'm going to have some meetings with people that I haven't met before. So what is your world going to look like? 
what if I ask myself, what would it look like to love God with the entirety of my being in each one of these situations? Vocational, in my work, in my relationships, in my recreation. What would love require of me? If I were going to love God with all of my being, how would things turn around a little bit? What, what kind of changes would I make? Because I don't know about you, but it's easy for me just to go on autopilot and there's things that need to get done. What if, what if I pause every morning, I, I paused in breaks between meetings, I paused before I wrote the email response to the nasty email I received, and I asked what would it look like for me to love God with the entirety of my being right now? As Jesus says that, that's the greatest commandment. What would it look like at home? What would it look like in my, in my workplace? What would it look like in my neighborhood? What would it look like in terms of... You know, what about my, my sexuality, my, my ethics? What does it look like? And, and rather than being like this heavy, like, oh, no, like, I'd be beautiful. If I could think, could this be the most loving response in terms of I'm honoring you, God, right now? Now, it's going to get a little bit more difficult because we have to ask the same question for the second commandment. This is this, right after it comes this one, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what would it look like for me to love the people around me as I love myself? Because everybody in the room, we have something. It's called self-preservation. It's called self-love, right? Instinct to survive, whatever you want to call it. What would it look like if in my interactions with other people I thought, how could I love this person? What does love require of me right now? Now, here's the thing. I, I think our definition of love, some of us, some men in particular, are like, ooh, you try doing that on my job site. You're going to get taken advantage of, right? Somebody's going to rip you off. Now, love isn't just an emotion, okay? That's one thing that I, I, I think culturally we don't understand. We think of love as like it's romance. No, love, love is different. Love is an action. Like love is a verb, okay? It's how I act towards people is what I do. So sometimes loving means I confront. Here's, here's one of the things about Jesus. Anybody knows he's super hard to pattern? You read him and you're like, the guy's totally inconsistent and, and he's unfair. Anybody ever notice that about Jesus? In my home, we have lots of talk about fair. You know, fair. he got more than me. You know, more of a, we, like, I, I got tired. I used to do an allowance. You know, if you did all your jobs around the house, it was based on your age, how many years you lived. And then, like, there was an uproar. There's a rebellion in my home. Like, we're all doing the same work. Why should I get paid less? Because I'm younger. I'm like, oh, good. So I just pay them all the same if they do their jobs. Because everything has to be fair. Has to be fair. We have an obsession with that. So let's picture Jesus. 
John 8 and John 4. Two interactions with women. Both. Who have been frowned upon by society. Pushed the edges. Rejection. John 8. Uh, she's about to be stoned. Executed. Because she was caught in the act of adultery. John chapter 4. Here's a woman. And so one, Jesus just steps in before the execution happens. Looks at, at the men who are going to execute her. Writes something mysterious in the dirt. Looks at these angry religious people and says, whichever one of you is without sin, I invite you to be the first one to throw a rock at her. And says, they all dropped their stones, beginning with the oldest, and they walked away. And this is all Jesus says to her. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. That's it. That's it. I'll tell you what I would have felt like I needed to do as a pastor. I needed to talk to the girl. We need to talk about your ethics. We need to, like, how are we going to not do this again? Let's set up a support group. We need to get you, like, that's it, Jesus? Like, it's over? She just experienced grace. John chapter 4. Jesus is at a well. woman comes to the well during the middle of the day. She doesn't want to be around anyone. She's a Samaritan. There's this ethnic divide. People can't, the Jews can't stand the Samaritans. And Jesus says, hey, can I have some water? And she's like, you're, you're talking to me? I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. And you're a Jewish rabbi and you're going to talk to me? I can't believe it. She says, yeah. And then he starts getting this conversation, turning it. And says, you know, you just gave me water. But I, I could give you water that's living where you'd never thirst again. She's like, that sounds great because I don't want to carry these buckets any longer. She's like, no, no, no. I'm talking about the thirst inside of you. Oh. And then Jesus is going to open up a can of worms that you and I know you shouldn't open up. He says, go get your husband. She just, I, uh, I don't have a husband. <laughs> This, this is what love means, right? This is Jesus loving someone. And Jesus looks at her and says, you're right when you say you have no husband because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Okay, like I took classes in psychology and that, like, Jesus, that's shaming. Stop it. Like, you don't have to bring that up right now, did you, Jesus? I mean, kind of sensitive. The lady's probably got some issues in the past. And you have to bring up that she's living with a guy too. And Loving someone means you want the best for that person. And Jesus says, in this moment, the most loving thing I can do is open up your past and let you know that I'm still asking you for a drink of water. I know what you've been through. I know the mistakes you've made. And I'm still offering. I knew that when I offered you living water. When I offered you something that would quench the deepest longings of your life. What you've been looking in through relationship after relationship after relationship. You've never found yourself to be satiated. I offered you. My peace, my love, my forgiveness. And I knew everything you had done. That's loving someone. But, but I don't always understand because in one instance, there's a rich young man who is incredibly devout. 
He says, I've kept all the law and the prophets from my youth. I don't know anybody who can say that. And he comes to Jesus with, it seems like a legitimate question. He says, what else do I need to do? And Jesus looks at him and says, he loves him. Jesus loves him. Didn't say he looked at him. He was like, oh. He looks at him. He loves him. Looks him hard in the eye is actually the great Greek phrase. Looks him hard in the eye and he says, you need to go and sell all your possessions. Give everything you have to the poor and then follow me. And the guy walks away very sad. That's not fair because Jesus has never said that to anybody else before. Like why the rich guy? Jesus knew something that we don't know from the narrative. When he looked in the man's eyes, he said the thing that is keeping this man back is he, he loves his possessions. He's tied to his possessions. So Jesus isn't worried about fairness. He's worried, how do I love this man right now? And he realizes what this man needs more than anything else is to be free, to be free from everything that owns him. I, we, we can go on and on. Zacchaeus, another tax collector. Everybody despises the guy. He climbs a tree because he just wants to see Jesus. There's all these great people around Jesus, this massive crowd. and They all want time with him. They all want attention. Jesus stops under a tree and here's this Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, because he can't see, he's vertically challenged. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. And people are shocked. They're, they're disturbed because this man... This is not the type of man you want to be seen with. This is the type of man that pollutes your soul. But remember, he belonged. At dinner, Zacchaeus spontaneously, Jesus doesn't even say anything, spontaneously stands up. He says, I, I, I repent and anything I've stole from people because he's a manipulator, he's a swindler, he's, he's taking money from people that he doesn't deserve. He says, anything I've done, I'm going to pay it back. I want to be different. It's spontaneous repentance in the presence of love. I think if I were watching, I'd say, why didn't you come to my house, Jesus? I'm a good guy. I'm not a tax collector. I'm not a manipulator. I'm not an extortioner. Jesus is never concerned about fair. He's concerned about how best do I love this person in this moment. So, what does love require of me? I mean, this is, this is discipleship stuff, right? Christian, Christian, we talked about that the first week. Christian is like, hey, I just believe in certain things and give me my ticket into heaven and, and, and I'll try to be a good person. This is Jesus driving it to a whole nother level and saying, what would it look like for me to love God with the entirety of my being, my heart, soul, my mind, and my strength. Everything that makes me, me, and you, you. What would it look like for me to say, in this moment, what I want more than anything else is to love you. And every day, what I want more than anything else is to love you. I don't want to get obsessed with your commands. I don't want to get obsessed with some of the auxiliary things that are very, very scintillating, sometimes exciting, but at the core can I just focus on being a lover of God? I remember the commander, not just the commands. And what would it look like in my day-to-day -day interactions if I was asking myself, what does love require of me? 
what is the most loving thing I could do for this person? How could I love this person the way I love myself? I go back to the banner. 20 some years later, I, I still haven't figured out a better way to phrase what it means to be a follower of Jesus than love God with everything you've got and love people with everything he gives you. If you do that, all the law, all the prophets, they all hang on those two things. That's the core. That's the center. Those are the essentials. So once upon a time, 2,000 years ago, there were a group of people who were as ordinary as we are. And they did this. They loved God with everything they had. Imperfect, ups and downs, days that were probably, they just wish they had a mulligan for that day. And guess what? They do mulligans, also known as grace, forgiveness. But they said, let's be people who love God and then love the world. And 2,000 years later, we're here because of that. In the midst of all the distractions, in the midst of all of the important religious things out there, could we make sure that everything hangs on? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we could do that, it's a better world. Father, I think all of us would admit that there are things that I love and it's not God and it's not people. There are things that call for my affections. There are things that I focus on that I shouldn't focus on. Lord, in the midst of all of this, thank you that you boiled this down to its most pure essence. You said everything hangs on these two ideas. God, first and foremost, I pray for all of us that we would be lovers of God with the entirety of our being. Would we love you? Lord, would we not be obsessed with our, our morality? Would we be, uh, be obsessed with loving God? Morality takes care of itself. Lord, would you teach us to love other people? It's this ongoing emphasis throughout the New Testament. Loving people. And Lord, I don't think many of us feel like we're experts, but we want to be learners. Teach us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength and to love the people around us in an extraordinary manner. If you keep your eyes closed for just one moment, I want to give you an invitation. If anyone's here, and maybe just as you've looked at Matthew 22, you thought, that's what I want. I want the first priority of my life to be to love God, and then I want to learn how to love people and if that's what Jesus is about, then I'm surrendering to him right now. I'm giving him my life. If that's you and you want to say, I take the step tonight. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to give him all that I have.
all my lacks, all my potential, I surrender to him. If that's you, just raise your hand and wave at me. I want to catch your eye. So Nate, tonight, yes, man, that's beautiful. You're his daughter, you're forgiven. Right here, yeah, you're his. He loves you entirely. You belong to him, all right? Anybody else? Is that you? Wave at me, catch my eye. Okay, oh, right here, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you applaud for the three people that raised their hands? That is something else. I love it. Hey, if you did raise your hand, it's the beginning of a new journey for you. You are his. He loves you. Head to the Welcome Center or talk to somebody. Because I got a little booklet I want to give you. There's a free Bible I want to get in your hands. Everybody else, love God with everything you've got. Love people with everything he gives you. Have a wonderful week. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front you can trust.